Welcome. This sermon is a recording from 2012, and I was preaching at my home church of Necton All Saints on the 23rd of December, drawing upon the opening chapters of Luke and the Nativity story. On this occasion, I'd like to preface this episode with a slight disclaimer. Near the beginning, I claim that before the Gospels, God had been silent for some 400 years. This is because that's about the length of time between the last book of the Old Testament and the beginning of the Gospels. However, there are a number of intertestamental writings, such as the Book of Maccabees and others, which do record something of the experiences of the people of God and their understanding of what God was doing. Indeed, some scholars make heavy use of these for understanding certain aspects of Jesus' teaching and the cultural understanding of his contemporaries. And so, with that slight caveat in place, let us begin. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. morning. Let's pray. Father, I speak in the name of your Son Jesus, who was born of a virgin at Christmas by the power of your Holy Spirit. May the words that I speak today testify to your glory in keeping with your Holy Scriptures and the Gospel of your Son. And may the ears of those hearing what I have to say this morning be transformed into the ears of those listening to what you have to say. In the name of our Saviour, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. It's two days until Christmas, and it's all very exciting, and everybody's getting happy and putting decorations up, um, getting ready and buying last-minute presents for family and friends, and frantically tidying up for the imminent arrival of relatives or collecting the turkey from the butchers and setting television boxes to record those Christmas specials such as Doctor Who or or EastEnders or most importantly of all the Queen's speech Oh, no cheer for the Queen, that's a shame (laughs) It seems that everything is happening all at once for yet another Christmas and yet it's possible that sometimes we're so busy getting ready for Christmas that we can forget to actually just make time for Christmas itself to actually relax and to enjoy our time together. Here in the church, we've been busy getting ready for Christmas too. We have a beautiful tree with many decorations. It looks absolutely lovely. We have the uh, nativity scenes around the church and the flower displays, which also look absolutely lovely. And we have a sermon that's being preached by me today that will obviously be fantastic. (laughs) Well, we hope so anyway. And even if we look back to the Christmas story, everything is very busy. Our Christmas story is taking place at the start of the Gospels. And the Gospels are taking place after roughly 400 years of silence. There's been no sign of God for ages. He hasn't appeared to his people or raised up any prophets. He hasn't done any miracles. He hasn't really done anything. And yet suddenly, within the first chapter of Luke, we've had two angelic encounters. A man has been struck dumb. An old lady that was unable to have children is pregnant. And so too is a young virgin. And what's more, these two miracle babies will grow up to be great men, holy men, 
One of them will be John the Baptist, who will lead many of the people of Israel back to the Lord. And the other is to be the Son of God himself, who is to come and reign all over God's people. Everything is happening, and it's all terribly exciting. Now, we all know the story of the Nativity. We know the story of Mary and Joseph and the donkeys and the angels and the kings and the shepherds and the wise men and all that that entails. And I could talk this morning about how amazing God can overcome everything in order to make these two very unlikely to get pregnant women pregnant. However, throughout this business of the Christmas story, there is a character that I think we sometimes just skim over, we pass him by. We just sort of read it and we smile and go, well, that's very nice, and yet we don't really take them into consideration. Well, who is that character? We've got the angels, check. We have Mary, she's kind of important, so check. Uh, we have Elizabeth, we have Zechariah, check. We've even met Herod a couple of weeks ago. Um, so who's left? No, I'm not doing a whole sermon on the donkey. <laughs> um, the neglected character here is the Holy Spirit of God. He is mentioned directly five times within the first chapter of Luke. We have him in Luke 1.15, 35 and 41. And he could also be argued to be implicitly present in verses 22, 24, 37 and 41. The Holy Spirit is clearly present within the Christmas story, but he is by no means in the limelight. And yet without him there wouldn't be a Christmas story. And so this sermon is going to be split into who is the Holy Spirit, what does the Holy Spirit do, and the grand finale. So, the Holy Spirit has always been a rather elusive character within the Bible. Often he's called the Spirit of the Lord, uh, but there are many other names attributed to him, such as the breath of the Almighty, the breath of life, the hand of God, the mind of the Lord, the power of the Most High. Or he is described as spirit of Christ, or the spirit of glory, or the spirit of grace, of judgment of empire, of prophecy, of wisdom and understanding, or just simply as the spirit, and many other names and references scattered throughout all areas of scripture. So we are faced with a Holy Spirit is most definitely of or belongs to God, and yet he seems to be so many different things at once, and he is all of these things. It would be a mistake to try and separate each of these different attributes of different spirits. So when we try to talk of who is the Holy Spirit, where do we start and what should we say? Well, when I sat down to think about this, I decided to look at the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed to see what the very early Christians thought. And whilst it's hard to date the Apostles' Creed, it's generally accepted to have been in the form we've had it now since roughly 100 AD. And in that they say, we believe in God, who is like this and like this and like this. And we believe in Jesus, who is this and did this and will come again to do this. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, they simply say, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's just it. We believe in the Holy Spirit. No descriptions or explanations, just a simple affirmation that they do believe in the Holy Spirit. They were still trying to grasp at who this Holy Spirit was, but they knew one thing, he was holy, and therefore he's connected to God. And they knew that they believed in him, and that he was so important he had to go in their creed that covered all the fundamental basics of Christian faith. Now, a couple of hundred years later we come to the Nicene Creed, 
And they had lots of meetings spanning several decades and sat down and argued and debated over different things. And they came up with this definition for the Holy Spirit. They said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. Here we find several really important things we need to know about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is described as Lord, and so is Jesus, and so is the Father. Now this shared adjective means that the Old Testament title, the Lord, is applied to all three. Now a quick examination of the Greek grammar would make it clear that all these three are the same Lord. So it's not that we have three separate Lords of a Father Lord, and a Jesus Lord, and a Spirit Lord, which could make it seem like we have three gods. We have one Lord. Father, Jesus, and Holy Spirit. And so we have three persons and yet one God. Make no mistake, these are three separate and distinct persons. So we can't say that there is a God who sometimes shows himself to be one and then the other. Um, because this was rejected as a form of, it's called modalism, where it's just one thing pretending to be different things. And that's not what the Bible says. Here in the Nicene Creed they say, the Holy Spirit is described as being worshipped and glorified with both the Father and the Son at the same time. And it's here that our doctrine of God, that we call the doctrine of Trinity, comes into play. Let me explain. We're all people. You're a person and I'm a person. This is... Um, sorry. You're a person and I'm a person, and each of us have a human body. For, for us, we tend to think of a person and a human being as being relatively interchangeable. But another way of thinking about this is as who's and what's. Who I am is Samuel. I'm the son of Stephen, who's standing up here preaching. But what I am is a human being. Just as Danny there is Danny, and he is also a human being. I am no more Danny than Danny is myself, but we are both humans. So there's a distinction between who we are and what we are. However, for human beings, we have physical bodies and physical space. Whereas if we look at what, who, what God is, we find that in the beginning in Genesis, you have in the beginning was God. And then he made everything else. So God is distinct from what he has made. So whereas we are material things with our own identities, God is a godly being with his identities. So we have three who's in one what. His whatness isn't a physical whatness. His whatness is a godliness. Now, sorry. Now, as there are three persons who are in one godly whatness, and all are equally God, we can't really talk about the Father being God without talking about Jesus being God. We can't really talk about Jesus being God without talking about the Holy Spirit being God. We can't talk about the Holy Spirit being God without talking about both the Father and the Son. Because if we talk of a Father, we have a Son, and if we talk of a Son, we talk of a Father. In John, Jesus says that if you know me, you know the Father. So we can know the Father by knowing Jesus. But how can we know Jesus? Well, this is where I want to move on to the role of the Holy Spirit. This is what the focus of this passage is today. The role of the Holy Spirit is threefold. The Spirit performs the will of the Father. For instance, when God takes Adam and he moulds him out of clay and breathes into him to give him life, the life-givingness to the dirt is by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Other examples of the Holy Spirit doing things are events such as the parting of the Red Sea, where the Israelites were escaping from Egypt, or as an empowering action for individuals serving God, such as Samson, where we read, Suddenly a young lion came roaring towards him. The Spirit of the Lord came on him in power, so that he tore the lion apart as he might have torn a young goat. Or another example would be Elijah, where he's on Mount Carmel with a religious showdown of the year against the prophets of Baal. They have two sacrifices and the prophets of Baal are praying to their God to set their sacrifice on fire. And Elijah is scorning them and heaps water on it. And when he prays to his God, the Lord Almighty, the whole sacrifice and the altar and the stones and all the water is completely burnt up. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we read in the Gospels about the miracles of Jesus, we find that acting in accordance to the will of the Father, he performed many signs and wonders by the power of the Holy Spirit, such as the feeding of 5,000 or the healing of sick or the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In each of these cases, it is the Holy Spirit doing these things as commanded by Jesus in accordance to the will of the Father. The second role of the Spirit is in prophecy. Throughout the Old Testament, the gift of prophecy is always associated with the Holy Spirit. The prophets were those who proclaimed the message of the Lord by the power of the Holy Spirit. So when Elijah prophesies, it's by the power of the Holy Spirit. When Jeremiah speaks, it's the word of God through the Holy Spirit. When Ezekiel has his visions and he's acting, it's all by the Holy Spirit. It's not that these people were cleverer than anyone else or that they had attained some sort of meditation or special ritual thing to get enlightenment. It's that they were chosen by God and that through them the Holy Spirit spoke to his people. Many of these people objected to their roles. Jeremiah objected he was a child and nobody, so how could he speak for God? And it says... Do not say, I am only a child, for I am with you. Then the Lord reached out his hand and touched my mouth, and said to me, Now I have put my words in your mouth. Then shortly after he says, Stand up and say to them whatever I command you. So, it's not because they were clever or special, it was because God has chosen them and is using them through the Holy Spirit. Even Saul, when he was really angry with David and he hated him and he wanted to go and kill him, even he prophesied when the Holy Spirit touched him. It says in 1 Samuel 19.23, So Saul went to Naoth at Ramah, but the Spirit of God came even upon him, and he walked along prophesying until he came to Naoth. The third and most important role of the Holy Spirit is that it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have faith, that we are Christians. Looking back at all the covenants through the Old Testament, from Abraham's vision of fire moving over the sacrificial offering, to the giving of the commandments on the mountain to Moses, and the covenant with David as prophesied by Nathan, the Holy Spirit is the one that mediates between mankind and the Father. It is by the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to have contact with the Father. And so we come to the finale. We actually come to today's passage. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Zechariah has been struck dumb. He can't speak. Two women for whom it should be utterly impossible to get pregnant in their circumstances are pregnant. And Mary has come to visit Elizabeth and bringing in her tummy the barely visible baby Jesus. And at her greeting, the baby John leaps for joy. The Holy Spirit that had been promised to him even while he was in the womb is present. And at the arrival of Jesus, he cannot help but leap with excitement. And then the Holy Spirit comes upon Elizabeth and she prophesies, Blessed are you among women, 
and blessed is the child that you will bear. But why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she that believed what the Lord said to her would be accomplished. The first two roles of the Holy Spirit are evident here. He has made these women pregnant. He is doing stuff. And he is prophesying twice. Firstly, through the words of Elizabeth, proclaiming that Mary will give birth to the Son of the Lord. Secondly, through the baby's leap for joy. The role of the Holy Spirit at this moment is literally to jump up and down and to say, look at Jesus. Don't look at me. I'm here. I'm here. But look over there. Look at him. It's Jesus. Get excited about this. Come on, that's Jesus. And that brings me to my earlier statement. We know the Father through Jesus. As Paul says in Colossians, he is the visible image of the invisible God. If you want to know the Father, you look at Jesus. But how do we look at Jesus? Well, through the Holy Spirit that points to Jesus. Jesus himself sums it up in John 14. I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really knew me, then you would know my Father as well. From now on you do know me, and you, have, you do know him as well, and you have seen him. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever, the Spirit of Truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives in you and will be with you. And this is the Christmas message that I want to share with you today. Jesus came that we might know the Father and have life. For that very purpose, he was born of a virgin at the very first Christmas over 2,000 years ago. And he grew up into a man that lived a perfect life. And then died for an imperfect people so that they too might have life. Life that is demonstrated by the miraculous resurrection that happened to prove that the power of sin had been vanquished and that life, true life in abundance, is available for us now. And how do we have this life? Well, by the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who spoke through the prophets. The Holy Spirit that made the baby jump for joy in the presence of Jesus. The Holy Spirit that proclaimed the life and death and life of Jesus through the church ever since and the Holy Spirit that lives in each and every single one of us Christians here today. A quick illustration before I finish. Last week was Christingle, and throughout Advent we've been lighting candles to represent that Jesus is the light of the world, and that through him we have faith. Now, if our faith in Jesus is represented by the candle that I have here on the table, then our faith is represented by the flame. But without the Holy Spirit... Our faith cannot live, because in this illustration, the Holy Spirit would be the air, the very thing that sustains and looks after our faith and keeps us from growing. And so, with the Holy Spirit, we can shine with the light of Christ forever. And by shining with the light of Christ and by living in the power of the Holy Spirit, it is my hope that this Christmas, we can remember that in the midst of all our busyness and our festivities, in the midst of all our preparations and our worries about the weather and the rain and whether or not our relatives will get here on time, we'll be able to actually pause for a moment to point to Jesus, the baby son of the Father that made the world and that loves everything in it. Merry Christmas. Amen. Amen.